0: We are back in the book of Judges this morning. You know, there is a, uh, a theologian out there by the name of John Cooper. I say theologian a little bit tongue-in-cheek. He's actually the lead singer of the Christian rock band Skillet's. And uh, Skillet is a group I used to listen to quite a bit, I don't listen to them as much as I used to, uh, but some of their more recent music is, I I still think it's good, um, if if that's the kind of uh, genre of music that you like to listen to. But a couple of years ago, he uh, made this statement, and I think it rings true. He once said, I'm amazed that so many Christians want the benefits of the kingdom of God but with the caveat that they themselves be king. I'm amazed that so many Christians want the benefits of the kingdom of God, but with the caveat that they themselves want to be king. I can't help but think that in so many ways that sums up the book of Judges. We have seen the, the, uh, the cycle of the Judges go round and round through this book, and we have seen... That, these, that the people, they want the benefits of being the, the people of God. They want God's protection. They want God's blessing within the land. They want the, God's security provided by, by means of being the people of God. And yet, they want to rule themselves. They want to be a people unto themselves. They want to be self-directed people. And we have seen, as we have moved through this, the failures of that... And the results of that that it has produced within the society. Last week we finished up the life of Samson. He was the last of the judges. We have seen numerous judges. We've seen men like Othniel, Ehud, shoving the sword into Eglon's belly. Shamgar, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, Abimelech, Jephthah. And then we have minor judges like Tola, Jer, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. Individuals we didn't talk a whole lot about because there's not a whole lot written. But then we saw the life of Samson. And as I read through that book of Judges, I I hope that perhaps just your familiarity with the book, or just even as we've moved through this book, that maybe different details would be springing to mind about these lives and these individuals. Like, oh, okay, yeah, we we covered these different individuals. And we we can reflect on, on how God used these people to accomplish His purposes and to bring deliverance for the people of Israel. But I also hope that you're able to remember that the names of the people at the beginning of the book and as, as we move through the book, then the names at the beginning ended up being a little bit more noble individuals in their pursuits and how they conducted themselves than, than the individuals towards the end of the book who are a little bit more self-directed. I Men like Othniel, Ehud, and Barak, and even, even the early part of Gideon's life, these individuals were concerned with the well-being of others. They, they led armies into battle against the enemies of Israel so the, for the purpose of delivering their people. Even with the various failures associated with their lives, that was, how, that, that was their pursuit. They wanted to deliver the people. But as the cycles wax on, we, we as they wax on, we find that they increasingly the judges act more and more for their own interests rather than for the interest of the nation. And this really began with a clear way with towards the end of Gideon's life, as he was seeking to accomplish his own vendettas and seeking to set himself up, accumulating everything for himself and setting himself up as a king, except denying himself the title. And then men like Abimelech and Jephthah, who only did things insofar it would serve their own interests and benefit them and establish their own authority. And by the time we get to Samson, there's not even a pretense of seeking to serve the people at this point. For as far as Samson's concerned, it's all Samson all the time. He's looking out for numero uno, and he has no concern for anyone else. He is entirely self-focused, self-guided, and ultimately his life ended in self destruction. But as we've gone through, we've seen a clear trend here, right? We see not just the cycle of the judges as it goes around, but the downward cycle, the downward spiral. Not just with the people, but with the leadership as well. Well, as we know, Samson is the last book of the book of Judges, and as the author is beginning to wind this book down, he gives us two stories that serve as the epilogues to the book to conclude where he has been taking this, 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 uh, this walk through this period of history. And as he sought to show us the increasing canonization of the people, these two final stories illustrate that in very stark ways. And there's a couple of episodes within these stories each. But as we come to this end of the book, we have these two concluding stories. By way of a preface to these two concluding stories, as we read through these, these stories are going to leave a little bit of a bad taste in your mouth. Okay, they may even make you sick to your stomach. Because of the details that are contained in there, indeed, there are very difficult things contained in these last few chapters, and that's going to be especially true, perhaps not this week, but in the weeks ahead, as we see some of the details of what can, as the as the book concludes, the very last portion of the book. In many ways, these are the most difficult chapters of the Old Testament, not just of the Book of Judges, but of the whole Old Testament. Just reckoning with what is occurring within the nation of Israel. I know I've had people ask me over the years, what's the point of these stories? Like, we read them and we just go, uck, like, what, why is this here? What's the, what's the benefit from these? What are we supposed to glean from this? Well, as we prepare ourselves to read this and as to approach these, these stories, this, this portion of Israelite history, I need you to know that the sickening feeling that, that we may experience is part of the points. It's part of of what we're getting at here. It's it's actually a good thing. We're we're not supposed to look at these stories and to gloss over the troubling details looking for some nugget of, of ray of sunshine in the midst of things. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to grapple with the dirtiness of what we're experiencing with these last few chapters. We're supposed to sit and and stare into the face of the depravity of Israel and really consider the depravity within our own hearts. To see the vileness of what sin really is. To see what happens to a society that has turned its back on the King of Kings. So don't try to push the yucky feeling away as we get, get through this. Let's reckon with this. Let's embrace this for what the text says. And see how God might be using that within our hearts to to see how awful our sin really is and use that to draw us closer to the Savior Jesus Christ so all of that with a preface to our to our concluding epilogues to the book we're going to be in chapters 17 and 18 this morning and I I warn you now this might be a little bit of a longer sermon as we try to get through this entire episode but The story is one cohesive unit, so we would do ourselves a disservice if we would try to either break it up or try to to gloss through it too quickly. But as we move through this today, we're looking at where does this rejection of God as the King of Kings and the subsequent increasing worldliness of a society, where does that lead us? Today we see that it inevitably leads to idolatry and to to a pursuit of, of selfish ambition, it leads to idolatry in a pursuit of selfish ambition. Let's begin with chapter seventeen verse one, where we see the inevitabil- the inevitability of idolatry. Judges seventeen verse one there's a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoken in my ears, behold, the the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, and his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah made a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We have a little bit of a unique situation here. A man comes to his mother, and this, there's, there's no... There's not a lot by way of background context for who these individuals are. This is just this is a story, and and it seems to be an an illustrative story of this is what is occurring in the nation of Israel. But he gives this particular story because it has bearing on what's going to come in chapter 18. But for now, as we look at some of these details, we see this man. He comes clean to his mother about stealing the silver, and it might be inferred from the text that he's coming clean because okay, she's uttered this curse. Uh, The silver is missing, and so she utters some kind of curse upon whatever individual took that money, and perhaps there were some things that were happening within Micah's life that he might thought, whew, this curse is coming true, this is happening, I need to come clean here. I infer that from the text, and he, he comes before him and says, look, you uttered this curse, well, I took it. I took the money, here it is, and now I'm returning it to you. Well, she responds in, in, in several ways that would be, that ought to be, shocking to us. That this would occur in the nation of Israel amongst God's people. First, she calls him blessed by the Lord, and, and, it's, and it's important to recognize at this stage of the book, the covenant name of the Lord is used. If you see in your Bible, anytime you see the capital L, capital O, capital O, R, capital D, Capital Lord, you see that. That is the the way that we bring into English the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh, is used in the original Hebrew in that text. So when you see that, that should be a clue to you. It's not just a generic Elohim. That's a generic term referring to deity. Sometimes it's used to refer to the Lord, but it's a more generic term. It's also used to refer to false gods and to, to various spiritual entities. But when you see the capital L O R D, Yahweh is being used. That is the covenant name of God that is ascribed to no one else. And here Micah's mom uses that and says, Blessed are you by the Lord, by Yahweh. And she uses that covenant name to issue that blessing perhaps to correct the curse that she had previously uttered. Now she is blessing the sun to counteract that, but then look at what she does with the money. She dedicates it to, again, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, but then she makes an idol out of a portion of the money it's bad enough to create an idol, right? That, that is a sin all on its own. We have the, the Ten Commandments that were commanded. You are not to make these graven images. You're not to make these carved images. You're not to make anything, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or earth beneath. We're not to do that. But she doesn't just make an idol, which is expressly forbidden by God. But then she has the audacity to say, this is Yahweh. You know, God has made it very clear that He is the one the true God. There is no other. To make an idol and to worship the created thing over the creator is one of the most arrogant and despicable acts that a human being can do. And this is what Romans 1 speaks to quite directly and quite forcefully. That we worship the created thing rather than the creator. And to add to the egregiousness of that sin, she says, this is Yahweh, as if one could, could capture the essence of the one creator of the universe, the one who is blessed forever, as if one could, could boil that down into an image, as if you could contain the immensity of the glory and the splendor of God in a metal thing that has just been carved out and melted, melted down and fashioned into some graven image. calls to mind the Israelites on Mount Sinai when, is, when Moses was up on the mountain and he's getting instruction from the Lord and the people are, are down at the base of the mountain. They're like, you know, Moses has been up there for so long, we don't even know if that guy is still alive. Aaron, make us a god. And so Aaron collects all the gold pieces and he fashions this, this golden calf. And then again, he has the audacity to say, this is Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And now here... We have this situation right again where this woman is doing the same thing that the Israelites did. And God went to great lengths to communicate to the people that this is unacceptable. That you do not capture my likeness in a, in a golden calf. Making an image after the gods of the people in whom, amongst whom you live. But that lesson seems to be long forgotten. God's judgment was brought upon the people in those days. That lesson is forgotten and Micah's mother commits this same atrocity as she fashions this idol. And Micah's response is not only to worship the image, but to turn his entire household into a shrine complete with priestly garments. And then he makes one of his own sons a priest, further violating the The law of Moses, of course, only Levites could be priests. This further demonstrates the Canaanization of the people. It was very common practice in those days to have household gods, to have idols like this. And it was very common to make your own son a priest and to administer the priestly activities. And that's just what the Canaanites did. Well, here's Micah doing the same thing, but calling it Yahweh. You know, to a later Israelite who may have been further trained in the law, who may have been fully committed to the one true God, these, these are truly shocking developments. Like, what is, what is happening in Israel? What, have, they, have, these, have these people forgotten so much of, of what God has done for them and, and where God has brought them to, how He brought them out of the land of Egypt, established them in the land? Have they forgotten so much? These things ought not to be. The narrator helps us out with verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Therefore, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king. There was no one to be the firm leader that the people needed. They, they had rejected the Lord. They had rejected truly Yahweh, not just they carved image. They had rejected the one true God And none of the judges, none of the leaders were providing the leadership that they so desperately needed. And case in point, just go back one chapter of the life of Samson. And this was not a man. He was leading the people. In fact, Samson was the one, by his own admission, by his own words, he pursued a Philistine woman. Why? Because she is right in my eyes. That's Samson's own words. So now here are all the people doing the same thing. There was no king in Israel. There was no one to to teach them the word of the Lord. No one to guide them in what was true. As a result, everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And why not? I mean, if you're going to cast off the instruction of the Lord, if you're going to reject the Lord as king, if you're not going to live according to his direction, what's left to do? but to live according to what I think. These are the the values I think are right. This is what I think I ought to be doing. This is the person or the, the ideology that I think I should follow. That's the only other direction. If you're going to reject the Lord, the only other barometer of truth is yourself. So the natural result, when you cast off the rule of the king of kings, you become a rule unto yourself. When people detach themselves from the guidance of the Lord, they will do whatever is right in their own sinful eyes. And so often that will lead to just kind of an aimless wandering. You know, if you're being directed by whatever you think is right and you don't, there's no, there's no true guiding uh, anything with that. There's no, to use an analogy, there's no north star, right, to to point you, to direct you in the proper direction. There's nothing to guide you that way. Well, you're going to be left aimlessly drifting, searching for something, whatever is right in your own eyes. And as we Read on, we're going to encounter a few wandering individuals and a wandering group who seem to be motivated by their own selfish ambition as they do what is right in their own eyes. When there is no king, when there is no leader directing the people as they ought to go, there will be idolatry. Well, it inevitably leads to idolatry. It inevitably leads to selfish ambition. It inevitably leads to selfish ambition. Verse 7. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and Micah said to him, well, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes for your, for your living. And the Levites went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and and the man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. Well, now this Levite enters the story. There's an interesting detail there. He says he's looking for a place. He's out sojourning. He's out wandering. He's out just looking for, for a place. Now, there's some ambiguity with that phrase. What does that mean? He's looking for a place. What is he actually looking for? Maybe it's a home. Maybe it's a, a new job, a place to call his own, an area to put down roots. From the context, I think we can surmise that he was looking for a place that might benefit in some way. He's looking for, for some situation that would be advantageous to him in some way. And already we have another issue. The law of the Lord is very clear. The, the Levites were not to be a people that were supposed to be out looking for a place for themselves. These weren't a people that were supposed to be going out and trying to find a where they could make themselves within the world. God had said in his law that, that God was their portion, that they were to be content serving the Lord through the tabernacle and temple ministries. And they weren't supposed to be seeking to make a place for themselves, make a name for themselves, to, to, to create a territory for themselves. There's no tribe of Levi as a territory within Israel. There's not supposed to be. They're supposed to rely upon God's provision. The fact that he is wandering could be indicative of at least two things. Perhaps the the people of the land are failing to provide for the Levites as God commanded in His law. the, The Levites weren't supposed to have their own land. They weren't supposed to have their own portion. They were supposed to rely upon the generosity and the supply from the tithes and the offerings that would come in from the people. Well, if the people are ignoring what God has said in His Word, they weren't providing that, the Levites would have to be finding a way to supply for themselves. The second, the Levites may have been failing to trust God's provision or were selfishly looking to establish themselves by wandering around looking for a place with what we know about the land at the time, it's probably a sad combination of those two factors. The the people failing to provide for the Levites and the Levites selfishly going out and looking, neglecting God's provision. In any case, here he shows up. He runs into Micah. Micah says, hey, you know what? I'll offer you a job. You be my personal household priest. I'll make you a priest. I'll give you this money. Be a father to me. I'll be like a son to you. And so the text says the Levite was content to dwell with him. And it says they became like family. Says he became like a father. He became like one of his sons. But notice the motivation of Micah in verse 13. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me. Why? Because I have a Levite for a priest. Right? That's all I need. I can get God's blessing as long as I have a Levite for a priest. You know, for all of his failures, for all of his, of all of his violations within the law, Micah thinks that he can curry God's favor, curry Yahweh's favor, by simply giving a token nod to one of the commands that God said in his word. One of the things that he knows is good and proper, hey, you know what? God wants a Levite to be the priest. I know that that's what he wants. So, here we go. I've got a Levite for a priest. And he concludes that he can almost bribe God to get, curry God's favor, purchase God's favor, simply by having a Levite as a priest. But he ignores everything else God has said. He's ignored what God has said about making graven images. He has ignored what God has said about setting up a, a personal shrine within his own home. And yet here he has the audacity to think that just having a, priest, a Levite priest alone will bring blessing despite the ongoing disobedience to what God has clearly said in his word. A church, I think we need to be careful here. It's easy for us, I think, sometimes to sit back and look at some of these characters within this book and be like, what are you doing, guys? Like, why are you so dense? Why are you so dumb? That that kind of uh, approach particularly comes along with the life of Samson, where it's just like, dude, you are really dull right now, as he's dealing with Delilah and how he's just being worn down like this. And we look at him and go, these individuals, they're not too brights. So often, we're prone to some of the the same kinds of mistakes, the same errors, the same sins befall us. How often do we think that we can perform our token actions to the Lord while ignoring other things that God has said? How often do we think that we can trade obedience in one area for our life and that we can get blessing? and license to disobey in this different area of my life. Well, yeah, this area of my life isn't as it should be, but at least I'm doing this other thing over here for God, so, hey, God should still bless me. If we are approaching any area of our life in this way, we're making the same errors that Mike is making here in this passage. And if we are approaching any area of our life this way, there's only one thing to do, and that's to repent. It's to seek our Lord with a whole heart. The prophet Joel says, rend your hearts, not your garments, to, to turn to the Lord and not do just, just token actions of repentance or token actions of obedience to try to earn something from God. No, you need a heart change. Something's got to change inside of you. And we know from the, what God has said in his word, the only way that that can come about is through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, it turns out the Levite wasn't the only one who was wandering around just looking for a place. Let's begin moving through chapter 18, where we see a whole clan, a whole tribe living the same way. Chapter 18, verse One, in those days there was no king in Israel. Again, the narrator feels the need to remind us of this. Hey, this, this explains what we're about to see. The story that's about to unfold, this explains what's happening. There's no one to direct the people. There's no one to be God's appointed leader so the people could direct their steps accordingly. So there's no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. You know, there's, a, there's a passage in, and I'm just going to pause for a moment, there's a passage in the book of Proverbs that often, I think, gets abused. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's relevant and applicable here. It's Proverbs 29:18. It says, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off, cast off restraints. But blessed is he who keeps the law. The traditional King James that we might be more familiar with, where there's no vision, the people perish. Sometimes that gets abused in like leadership contexts. But the word for vision speaks of a prophetic word or a word of revelation. It's not just talking about like vision casting and having a dream for the future or anything like that. It's talking about the word of God. When the word of God is neglected, the people cast off restraint. They, they run amok. They, they come out of control. There's nothing to guide them. There's nothing to direct them. When there's nothing to restrain them, there's nothing to guide them, this is what we see as the result. Because Israel has neglected the word of God, this is what is happening. The Danites are looking for a place themselves. The Levite was looking for a place. Well, now here we have The Danites doing the same. Now, if we were, we're not going to flip there now, but if you want to make a note, you can. There actually was an area of land that was allotted to them in the book of Joshua. Joshua 19, verse 40 and following, we see the area that was allotted to the Danites. But just for a moment, we are going to turn back to to Judges chapter 1 for a moment. Because this is important for why we understand why the Danites are in the position that they are in. All the way back in Judges chapter 1, again, if, if we recall back, this is the beginning of the failures of the people. They, not everyone was driving out all the people from the land. They were not doing what God had commanded them to do. And so we read in Judges chapter 1, verse 34, that the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down into the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Aijalon, and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor." The Danites weren't able to establish themselves as a people, as a clan. They weren't able to establish their own territory. And so as a result, here they are towards the end of the book of Judges. It's been a few hundred years since we read that in in chapter 1. And they're still trying to find a place for themselves. So here they are looking to be more settled. Let's read on verse 2. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they, by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levites. And they turned inside and said to him, well, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, this is how Micah has dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, well, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest says to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Personally, I think it's a little pretentious of this Levite to declare God's blessing on an activity that God did not sanction. Uh, but hey, you know, they're breaking every other rule in the book, so why not, why not this too? Why not speak falsely for the Lord? That's, let's just stack it on top of the sins already being committed. Make false promises for the sake of making this tribe at ease. So the result is the Danites, they're just going to keep on going their conquest. They're just going to keep on doing their thing, looking. Uh, and eventually we're going to see them go, and they're going to destroy a city. Let's, let's keep reading. Verse seven, then the men departed and came to Laish, and they, they, they saw the people who were there and how they lived in security after the matter of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to the brothers of Zora and Ashtoel, their brothers said to them, "Well what do you report?" And they said, "Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, And behold, it is very good. And what and will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious. for God will give it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So they've got these great reports. We found the place for us. And they note how it is a place that's rather isolated. it's unsuspecting. They're far from the Sidonians. It's going to be an easy victory let's go. And so they do, they pursue it. Verse 11, so 600 men from the tribe of Dan armed with weapons of war set out from Zorah and Ashtaol, they went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanan-Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to the brothers, Do you know that in these houses there is an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and, metal, and a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite and to the home of Micah, and they asked him about his welfare. Now the six hundred men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gates, And the five men who had gone out to scout out the land went up and and entered in and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when they went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, and notice the repetition there. When you see repetition like that in a text like this, the author's trying to hammer a point home like, This is what they're after. This is an important detail within this story. They're gathering up all of these priestly things, all of this religious paraphernalia. Well, now they're gathering all that up. The priest says to him, what are you doing? Verse 19, they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be a father and a priest. It is better for you to be a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest of the house of one man? to be a priest of a tribe and a clan in Israel and the priest's heart was glad he took the ephod and the household gods in the carved image and went along with the people you know in many ways these Danites they seem to be very opportunistic people they just any opportunity that they've got to to, to do something for themselves to benefit themselves they are on it like did they just they hop right after it, they see the opportunity well, the Levite, he was the one that gave him the blessing before. Hey, yeah, what you're, what, what you're about to pursue? The lord It's under the little hand eye of the Lord. It's, it's all good. Pursue it. And so now they come to him again. They say, you know what? We're going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Don't just be a Levite and a priest for one guy. Come for this, this whole clan. Right? Like, we're giving you a promotion here. And now the Levite jumps at the opportunity. And I find this, how, how fast this Levite's, just was, it says his heart was glad. Just a few verses earlier, at the end of chapter 17, it said he was content to be Micah's priest. And he was like a, they became like a father and son together. There was family dynamics there. They're so close. And the first opportunity he gets to get this promotion. Well, see you, Micah. Nice knowing you. I'm going with the Danites. There's no loyalty. There was no holding true to the commitment that he had made. He is just as opportunistic as the Danites. Well, let's let's read on. We have a, a couple more paragraphs left before we conclude, and we want to catch this whole story. Verse 21. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. And when they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the house near Micah's house were called out, They overtook the people of Dan, and they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you, that you come out of such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I made, and the priest, and go away, and, and what have I left? How then do you ask me, what's the matter with you? It's like, what do you mean, what's the matter? You just stole all my stuff, man. You just took everything. And the people of Dan said to him, verse 25, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your households. So They threatened him. They said, Hey, be careful how you talk to us. we got some people here that could make your life be not a life very quickly. So... There's a very convincing argument. Verse 26, "...and the people of Dan went their way, and Micah saw that they were too strong for him, and he turned and went back to his home." So they take this by force, and that's not the only thing they take by force. Verse 27, "...the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire." And there was no deliverer because he was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. He was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab, and they built, rebuilt the city and lived in it. They named the city Dan after the, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, And his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. And they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. The Danites, they took Micah's idol and his priest by force. They took the land by force. They settled in the city and then they set up that idol to worship in the place of Yahweh. When there is no king in Israel, idolatry is rampant. And I keep saying, when there is no king, the reality is is that there was a king. But they rejected that king. Israel rejected his rule unless they're reaping the consequences. And in so many ways, I can't. We are very, always very careful to make a distinction between the church and Israel. We are always very careful to make a, a distinction between America and Israel. We don't conflate the two. But there are patterns that repeat themselves that happen with the people of Israel that continue to happen across societies globally around the world from the history of time. Going all the way back, you even see it in the days of Noah. But we see it today. When we cast off the rulership of the king of kings, the only place for us to go is towards some other idols that we create. You know, there, there's a theologian that once said that the human heart is a factory of idols. It just produces them. It just, it just stamps them out over and over again. It just That's what our heart makes. It makes idols. We will worship something. We will worship the one the true God or according to whatever seems right in our own eyes, we will worship ourselves, we will worship something else, we will give ourselves to something else. But if we reject the rule of God over our lives, the only end of that is ultimately death. And we see that in our own society. We look at the world around us and we see the sin that is rampant. We see the immorality that is present. We see sin that's celebrated. We see the different idols of the world that go on. And it's a rejection of the King of Kings. A rejection of what God has said in His Word. When we reject Him. There's nothing else to submit ourselves to. So we pursue whatever is right in our own eyes. Whatever, whatever satisfies our own selfish ambition. But the Lord warns us, Proverbs 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but, but its end is the way of death. When we pursue our own vision, when we pursue what is right in our own eyes and fail to submit to what God has said in His Word, that's the result. Chaos, death, and destruction. And that is what has occurred And the life of the Israelites over and over and over again as we have gone through the cycle of the Judges. And the only antidote to that is to forsake our own way and to follow after the Lord. And so the Lord says through Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God offers us forgiveness for going our own way, choosing our own path, doing whatever is right in our own eyes. In our story, we have Micah, we have the Levites, we have the Danites, each of them doing what was right in their own eyes. And it was wickedness all the way around. Micah thought he could earn the Lord's favor by token religious nods. And if we're, to be honest, we're prone to such things ourselves. In a moment, we're going to close with the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Verse 3 carries these lyrics. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Within that same verse, begs for God's hand of protection. Here's my heart, Lord. Take it. Seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. we consider the aimlessness that a rejection of the king brings may the words of that song as we're about to sing may that be our prayer as we reflect upon what god has revealed to us through this book of judges let's pray Father, I thank you so much for the testimony of the book of Judges. We see with such stark detail what happens when a, when your people reject you and reject your word and try to gain your blessing through token religious nods. And yet, yeah, Lord, if we are honest, if we are not careful, we are so prone to do the same things we reject and, and seek to live in sin in areas of our lives and and think that we can... Well, I, I go to church, and maybe I, maybe I give money in the offering, or maybe I, I, I serve in these other ways. I can do these token religious activities to make us feel comfortable with the sin that we live with. May it never be, Lord. May that never be a part of us. Protect us from that. Guard us against that. Lord, though we are so prone to wander and to chase after the things of this world, guard our hearts and keep us following after you. I thank you for the promise of the gospel that all those who believe in Jesus Christ do not have to face your wrath, do not have to endure your judgment, but are forgiven for our wanderings, forgiven for doing what is right in our own eyes, forgiven for our rebellion against you. May you be honored in our life today. And may these stories from the book of Judges drive us to the Savior Jesus Christ.